0: welcome to another sustainable wine podcast my name is toby webb and i'm introducing here a session on misinformation in wine and transparency and science and the debate about clean and natural wines it's moderated by erica juicy chief content officer for emetry and this was part of a conference we held on the 26th and 27th of november 2020 and features richard Banfield master of wine and jones from waitrose felicity carter from menninger's wine business international and liz earl mbe writer tv presenter and entrepreneur i hope you enjoy the session the conference was sponsored by the british standards institution chateau lube concha dm and control union thank you for listening and please do check back for other podcasts you can find us on your podcast app by searching for sustainable wine
1: I'm Erica Ducey, coming to you live from New York, uh, early, very early on a Friday morning after Thanksgiving, but so delighted to be here with you. Um, so um, most recently, uh, I was at a, a large American publication, a wine and spirits publication called Vine Pair. Um, And throughout my career, I have uh, run several Um, Wine and Spirits publications um, all in the United States, as well as many other lifestyle publications. Um, And then most recently, I've just uh, left uh, real full-time publishing to move over to the e-commerce side. And uh, there I'm a chief content officer of a new um, e-commerce platform that will be coming live uh, in 2021. So we are really in the development phase right now, and uh, we'll be excited to share the results of that sometime next year. Um, but I'm thrilled to be able to meet with you today and discuss one of my favorite or shall we say least favorite topics in the wine space, which is uh, really the misinformation in wine and examining how transparency and science can really change the debate uh, on clean and natural wines. So um, I'll kind of give a brief introduction, then I'll have uh, our panelists introduce themselves and then we can uh, jump into um, a broader discussion. So. Uh, so I think you know, 2020 will be remembered not fondly uh, for many things, um, but among them is the epidemic of fake news that has been threatening democracies around the world. And in the wine trade, we've had our own fake news epidemic, and that's really the rise of wellness marketing and a rash of inaccurate health claims that have accompanied it. So for those who haven't been as obsessed with this topic as I've been, a quick recap. Um, So this summer we saw the launch of high profile brands. So there was actor Cameron Diaz's, Aveline, there was the wonderful wine company of American online GTC company, And these brands have joined some other wellness focused wine companies who market their products as clean and transparently produced, uh, but not necessarily how we would consider them to be transparently produced, meaning they're not saying even from which regions or wineries they're being made at. Um, And what these wine brands have done, which are are very sophisticated uh, in their social media and marketing efforts, is to really pit themselves against conventional wines. Um, And they've said, you know, these wines, conventional wines are filled with dangerous chemicals. They're filled with additives and sweeteners. You know, some companies have gone so far as to say that their wines are hangover free. Um, So to say that this type of misinformation has struck a nerve with the wine trade, will would be sort of an understatement. So <laughs> across publications and social media, um, this type of uh, information has been attacked. But at the same time, um, it has also brought new attention to transparency and ingredient labeling in wine. So that's a little bit about where we find ourselves. And then over the next hour, we'll discuss how the wine trade can combat this misinformation and then examine also the future of wellness marketing in wine more broadly. uh, we have uh, we have three right now, four soon uh, panelists that will be joining us today. Um, Liz Earle is live on Instagram right now, and she will be coming in uh, about 20 minutes after the hour. Um, but the rest of our esteemed panelists uh, include Richard Bamfield, Ann Jones, and Felicity Carter. So why don't we jump in? Uh, Ann, would you mind um, introducing yourself? And we'll have each person talk a little bit about how. Uh, clean wine or wellness marketing has entered their markets and then um, we will then move into the bigger discussion.
2: Cool, so um, I'm Anne Jones, I'm the category manager for beers, wines and spirits at Waitrose, which is a premium UK supermarket with a a very good reputation for wine. Um, Interestingly, we're also a, um, we're a partnership, so we are co-owned Um, by our members and we exist for the profitability and wellness of our members and talking about wellness and well-being actually we we set up in the early 1900s and principle seven of the partnership constitution actually refers to us contributing to the well-being of the communities in which we operate and the fact that that was so early in the 1900s is, is very interesting so well-being and wellness is actually something that's that's I mean, I'm being slightly facetious saying it's close to our hearts, but I think it's it's our customers have a particular fascination, I think, with wellness. So for us to try and get, if you'll forgive the the, the phrase, try and get under the skin of this, I think is, is really important for us as a business so that we can understand how better to communicate with our customers and basically to give them the information that they want. How they want to receive it, and and I think the the way that we do do that with our, with our our own content and our own conversations with our customers is absolutely vital. And I mean, it's an unfashionable thing to say, but the the clean wine debate has shone a light, a, a very kind of harsh spotlight, I think, on our on our failings so far as an industry. Um, and frankly, some of the work they've done is is admirable you have to admire you have to admire the um, the the cut through they've they've managed to achieve it's it's absolutely it's pr- really impressive and my view is that ingredient labeling and transparency very difficult argument to come back at a, at a very clean clear message that's about the absence of something For us then to come back with ingredient labeling and to talk about so much detail is is never going to actually win that argument. We're never going to get the cut through. So I'm hoping that through this conversation, we're we're going to unpick some of that today.
3: Wonderful. Uh, And Felicity, would you go next? Okay, so I'm Felicity Carter. I'm the editor-in-chief of Mining as Wine Business International, published in Europe. And we look at global trends. And I started to see sort of rumblings of this happening um, earlier this year before Avaline was launched and we've done we've done quite a lot of work looking at what's happening And it's really coming out of California that there's a whole um, move towards meditation wellness that's been accelerating by the pandemic and above and beyond consumers um, in the US but increasingly in other markets are getting concerned about sugar they've learned that um, sugar is added to processed foods and it's hidden in all kinds of ways and people have woken up to the fact that there's a lot of residual sugar in more Wine. That's actually a real concern, and it's one that the wine industry should should talk about. Um, but what's happened is a number of very opportunistic companies who actually have roots in the beauty space, not um, not wine at all, um, have jumped in to bring some some practices that are happening in cosmetics at the moment into to wine. And why this is quite dangerous is because they're bringing pseudoscience with them. There's a a whole sort of goop wellness thing going on in in cosmetics where anything that has a chemical name is perceived is perceived as as poisonous. Um, and unfortunately, it's very it's very difficult to um to have have those as uh, answers uh, uh, it's very it, it's much easier to say something is poisonous than it is to go through the explanation of why it's perfectly fine so i think this is a really tough um, this is a really tough situation
1: great thank you and and richard
0: yes uh <clears throat> hello richard bamfield um i've had 40 years in the wine business as a as a professional and a, a drinker which i think is just as important um, i don't really have a proper job i'm part educator part independent consultant and above all a, a keen observer of the world of wine and i guess i'd like to help shape a better future um, I don't see the world as black and white as many seem to, and so I often reach different conclusions to others. And quite often, find myself finding sympathy for a minority cause. Uh, as far as the my my feelings on the, the the clean and natural wine movement, just very briefly, I think that uh, we we need to get, go back a step a little. One of the reasons wine has become so popular in non traditional wine-producing countries, so UK, US, is because I think wine is has, has been considered as a natural, healthy, alcoholic drink, probably more so than spirits or wine. And so I think we've almost taken that for granted over the years. And certainly in China, one of the reasons red wine became so popular was because red wine was considered good for your health. And that narrative has been accompanied by beautiful pictures of vineyards which as they're typically not on flat agricultural land are often in the most beautiful parts of the world. So I actually think the natural conversation the wine being a natural product has been part of possibly implicit conversation for years. Uh, What's happened of course is it's been shaken up recently and particularly by the unpleasant and sometimes untruthful uh, comments that If a wine isn't uh, clean, then it must be dirty. And I actually think the natural wine movement can take some of the blame for this as well, because some of the natural wine producers have been saying that their way is better. Their way is more natural. Their way is healthier, which almost certainly hasn't been helpful. So I guess look, I just wanted to put a, a little bit of context to this. I don't think it is totally new. What is new is the urgency to address it.
1: Absolutely. Well, I think that's a great place for us to to kick off and really start to think about the bigger context in which wine finds itself. So, you know, at this point, the natural marketing has been well ingrained uh, in you know cosmetics, felicity. You mentioned um, you know most food and drink. Uh, product categories but not in wine and why is it that you think that um, it has taken so long for this conversation to come to wine and if anyone feel free to jump in
2: I'd quite like to jump in on that to begin with I think um, we've got some very interesting um, statistics where we've looked at our we've asked our customer base uh, what their the main um, questions and what their considerations are when they're purchasing products so sustainability price value etc and interestingly for wine it always comes out right at the bottom of the pile for sustainability and wellness principally i think um uh, because there is no understanding of what that means in relation to wine when you ask when you look at actually specific um sales categories you can see organic vegan they're all flying that all those numbers are up but actually the customer does not understand how wellness relates to them when it's when it comes to wine. And I think that's because uh, this is so basic, but when it comes to it, if you're shopping cosmetics, you're shopping chicken, you're shopping even milk, if you're any other category that you're buying for, everything looks different. And I think you go into the wine department and it basically looks the same. Everything looks the same. And I think that means that customers just find it so hard because any differentiating factor, unless it says clean in massive letters across the bottle every every other differentiating factor is in you know tiny tiny script typeface font eights on the back label and I think that that the customer just hasn't had the energy to make those decisions whereas it's made much easier for them in cosmetics fruit and veg wherever else it is that they're shopping it's much easier for those decisions to be made I think Right. So, so definitely uh, a a labeling issue,
1: we've made it very difficult for consumers to really sort of cut through um, what some of the different, you know, terminology or labeling might be. Does anyone else want to hop in there?
0: I'll come in if you want, Erica. Um, I do think, uh, I think wine realizes that it does have a slightly guilty secret. And I'm not making a distinction here between industrial wines and terroir wines. I don't think that's helpful. I think we all know in the wine business that there are lots of additives that can be used. And there have been things used traditionally in the traditional winemaking process, which we wouldn't really want the public to know about, and which we certainly wouldn't want to see listed on back labels. And I think because we've got that little guilty secret, we've been reluctant to to, to grasp the nettle. Um, the point is now, if we don't do it, if the business doesn't do it, it'll be taken out of our hands. You could argue it's already being done so. The, the EU is, we know, is as Dominic has said in the chat, is consulting on this at the moment and is expected to come up with uh, some proposals in, in 2022. I don't know how involved the industry is in those discussions, but if past record is anything to go, past history is anything to go by, we're not very good at lobbying for that sort of thing, and I think that's what worries me. That the decision, if we don't, if, if if retailers and producers don't work together to address this unilaterally, I think the decision will be taken out of our hands.
1: Yeah, and I think I think you know another another great you know point to this is um, especially with uh, younger consumers, with millennial consumers, we've seen at least in the United States uh, a, a share drop of wine in comparison to spirits and other alcoholic beverages. So, you know, I think the, you know, legislators will uh, take up the cause, but I think also consumers, um, are really finding some sort of like labeling and really understanding what's in their, uh, the foods and beverages that they drink, um, more important than ever. And I, I have, you know, thought of the clean wine marketing, um, As something of an existential threat, in that if we don't kind of respond to a lot of these concerns, it could be, you know, lead to further share declines uh, across the board for wine. So, you know, in in, and I, you know, I'm uh, in the U.S. market, but I'd like to hear from other markets. Are you seeing um, a really a rise in um, the this type of marketing and consumers? Uh, feeling like that they, you know, they are more and more interested in understanding the ingredients uh, across, you know, all of the markets that you work in.
3: If I could just jump in on that, um, Geisenheim University recently did a study on. Um, how consumers would react to wine ingredients labelling because it is it is going to come in the EU in the next couple of years. What they discovered is that consumers are, are simply not interested in it. The one time that they're interested is if they read negative um, media commentary about what's in wine and they've been reading a lot of that recently mostly because as Richard says the natural wine movement. The natural wine movement has has had an overall extremely positive impact on wine, but there are people in natural wine who quite cheerfully say that if you drink natural wine, you're, you won't get a hangover like you will with conventional wine. And that ends up in the press. And it's at that moment that people take. Um, take notice. So there's not actually a groundswell. Outside of the United States, I don't actually see a groundswell of people wanting ingredients or wanting transparency. What, what's happening is that, that the other parts of the wine industry are being so derogatory um, to, to give themselves market share that it's, it's putting a light um, on things that otherwise people people trust, people trust wine. I think, you know, it's, it's a very, very, very heavily regulated sector um, but but the, it's it's actually partly coming from inside the wine trade that people are, are beginning to sow down. And I'm not saying I mean I think ingredients labeling is a really good thing, but we shouldn't we shouldn't mistake this for an organic consumer movement. It's actually part of a marketing movement from other areas of the wine industry. Yeah, I, I was i one of
2: my points I was going to make today is I'm I'm quite keen that the conversation about clean wine and how we uh, connect with customers around the kind of the nature of the product it is that we've got. I think that is one discussion, and ingredient labeling is another. I think we're almost tying them together too much because you know saying something is gluten-free is totally different to having a list of you know a hundred different ingredients that a customer needs to pour through to understand if that wine is gluten-free or not. Um, I think ingredient labeling and, clarity of messaging around what wine is or isn't in terms of a health benefit is a a slightly different different discussion. Yeah I agree with that. Mm -hmm. And I think one of you
1: know one of the things um, I think Felicity that I know you've written a lot about and probably others have um, uh, you know some uh, some pretty uh, strong opinions on is when we do hear misinformation, we hear all of these claims being made that you know, certain wines will, will leave no hangover, that um, Velcorin, that you know, um, all sorts of chemicals are uh, residues are in conventionally made wines. How do you think we as the wine trade can most effectively combat that misinformation?
3: Well, one one of the things I'll I'll jump in again. One of the things that that did happen um, is is um, with a lot of negative publicity, some of those companies actually retracted their claims. Um, You know, we've talked Eric and I have talked about Dry Farm Wines, which is not a clean wine company as such, but it 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 touts itself as being healthy and um, not like wretched conventional wine that's full of. sugar and it made a lot of claims about conventional wine being full of things like GMOs which actually wine is not there are no GMOs um in in wine at all and and once they were once they were hit hard with the the fact that these were un, these were false claims they've, they've actually stopped using them so um so I think that that's been quite good which is to push back you know that we, we we sort of we're in danger of accepting the criticism that there are these these toxins in wine and and there aren't even with um velcro in which in its sort of you know, in the winery state can be quite dangerous. But when it's dissolved in wine, it's not. I think it's really important for us not to um, not to sort of surreptitiously agree that, yes, there are bad, bad things in wine that we'd, we'd rather not talk about. I think we should be quite open about winemaking as, and, and the chemistry of winemaking as well and not shy away from it.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think uh, Liz Earle has just joined us. Uh, Liz, are you? Here? <laughs> Hi, how are you? Thanks so much um, for joining us.
4: It's a pleasure. It's such an interesting discussion. And, you know, labeling and transparency and ingredients is something that's just so close to my heart. It's always been a long-standing passion. Great. Well, I would love to
1: hear uh, from you. Um, for your audience, just to get kind of a benchmark, um, since you're dealing with a large consumer audience, do you find that this issue about labeling and transparency in wine is becoming more important to them over time?
4: Definitely. And I think, you know, one of the reasons for that is that we're seeing greater transparency on all other kinds of labelling. You know, for example, if I look back to my time at the beauty company, we have this thing called the Inky International Nomenclature of, of, of Naming Ingredients. And that's so the consumer knows whether they're sensitive to something or, you know, they know exactly what's in the bottle of what they're buying. And it's always seemed to me to be completely wrong that an industry like the beauty industry has to go through such lengths which is obviously a good thing to write what's in the bottle but it's just going on the skin you know you're not ingesting it so its implication is is far less than something that you are taking internally and that's being absorbed through the liver and circulating around the body so we have it with food and i know there's very powerful lobbying that goes on to keep Ingredients off the label in certain parts of the, the drinks industry. Not, I'm not saying for, for wine at all. Um, but you know I'm thinking about things like alco pops and all sorts that we have no idea what particularly what our teens are drinking. And you know to your speaker's earlier point, there are no nasties in wine. <laughs> you know it, it's already a very clean, if you like, good, wholesome, straightforward, traditional, for the most part, um, process. And I would love to see that labelling appear. I I would love for for, for winemakers to to say, and I don't know legally whether they're allowed to say or whether they could take the lead here and say, these are our ingredients. This is what's in the bottle. And I'd love to know the sugar content. I'd love to know the alcohol content. I'd like to know perhaps percentage of sulfite. You know, these things that I'm hearing from my audience, people are becoming more aware of and they will make choices based on those points if they're on the label to be seen to start with. So I think the winemakers who can start to embrace this commercially will benefit.
1: Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, maybe that is a good segue for us to talk a little bit about the arrival of wine labelling in the EU which is expected to come in 2022. Um, Felicity, do you, can you talk a little bit about uh, what that is um, likely to entail?
3: Yeah, so it's it's not going to be about processes. And this is this is a really key distinction in this whole debate. So there are things which are ingredients, which, um, you know, oak would be considered. Anything that changes the flavour of the wine or is added to the wine and remains in the wine is considered an ingredient. So um, but there are lots of things which are done to wine which are considered a process, like, say, PVPP, which I, I can't pronounce the full chemical name. So, um, but, but it's used as a, a binding agent to remove colour from wine if you want those really pale rosés. So something like that won't end up on the label because it's actually removed from the final wine. Um, I think one one thing I would say, which is one one labelling that we really do need, is, is the guy who's behind dry farm wine who's been attacking the conventional wine industry, he's absolutely right on one point. He's been sending off uh, a lot of wines to laboratories to have their output and their sugar levels tested. And what he's discovered is that the alcohol levels listed on the label are a complete lie. Um, they, they often bear no relationship to the level of alcohol that's actually in the wine. And I think that's that's something that we should be absolutely deadly accurate about. Um, Interestingly, what consumers really, really want is they want to know the sugar content of the wine. They want to know how many calories they're consuming. And that's not going to be um, – that's under what's called a nutrition label, and these will not be nutrition labels. They'll be ingredients labels. So in some ways they won't satisfy the demand that the consumer is most looking for. Mm. Interesting. I would say your,
2: your consumers seem to be more obsessed with sugar. I, I I still probably I have a stock response about sulfites, which I think I probably send out still four or five times a week. Um, it, it's constant, the inquiry about sulfites. And, um, and I think, you know, the fact that that is the one thing that's currently on a label, it says contains sulfites, that means that therefore everyone blames that for every bad Hmm. effect that they have so ingredient labeling at least it might take the pressure off sulfites a bit but i i think i think we come, we come into we come into a problem for why for actually when it comes to production in some ways is actually you know the complication as you say with sulfites levels of sulfites whether it's free bound molecular um when we're talking about um RS should be an easy one, but alcohol too. Actually, when it comes to labelling it, you've got to know first. And I think, you know, based upon my experience of talking with and trying to get product data out of, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of producers, honestly, I I suspect half of them don't know, let alone be able to put it on the label. And I think that's going to be the biggest problem.
0: Mm. Can I just come in there, Erica, regarding alcohol content and black labels generally. One of the responses of wine producers to alcohol content and, in fact, ingredient listing is that it might change from year to year. So ingredient, what the the processing aids they might use in winemaking could change from year to year. And obviously alcohol content is almost certainly going to change from year to year. And their argument is we can't afford to print different black labels every year. For me, that argument doesn't stand up. With modern technology, um, they, 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 it it's not, doesn't have to be that expensive to apply that information to a back label year by year. And I, I just think it has, the, the whole area has to be given a greater priority in than in the past.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Felicity, I would love if you would talk about uh, the biogenic amines. Oh yes. Um, And uh, the reaction that some people may be attributing to sulfites.
3: Oh, that's right. So I had a long conversation with Dr. Karina Stockley, who's a pharmacologist from Australia, who's one of the world's experts in ingredients and and allergy, allergy making compounds. And so on, and she said what what people think is a reaction to sulfites is actually a reaction to the biogenic amines in wine. And she said these come mostly from wines that are, uh, from grapes from warmer climates, and and grape, and anything that's been through malolactic fermentation. So red wines, but also um, you know Chardonnay and so on. It was very interesting that the the young woman that started the Good Clean Wine Company. They came out of the beauty industry. Um, But they started it because one of them had um, gone to Europe. She'd drunk wine at lunch, had no problem at all. She'd come back to the United States. Um, She'd had some wine at lunch, and she felt really, really terrible afterwards. Um, And she decided it was the additives in the wine that had done that to her. Well, probably what had happened was she was drinking more wine in a bigger glass. She was probably drinking New World wine at a high alcohol level but depending on what she was eating at the time if she was eating cheeses and fish and cured meats and so on they also have biogenic amines in them so if you get a great big dose of things like histamine um, and you're particularly sensitive to it you will feel really really lousy particularly if you've been eating them all day and and what you'll do is you'll blame the wine so wine is actually getting a lot of blame um, for things that it's actually not the wine and sulfites are getting a lot of blame for things that might actually be the histamine in wine Um, so it's, it's interesting thing and I'm not sure how we communicate that to customers.
1: And then the food classes uh, that have the high biogenic amines was was that like cured meats and cheeses yes. and yeah that's right. so so
2: all dried the, fruit uh, dried fruit I believe dried dried fruit in bags has um, okay so,
3: so all of the things that people stand I mean you can go on Instagram and you look at a lot of the people who are into clean wine and you and they're all putting cheese boards up they're all drinking wine in the afternoon when they're having their you know their their ham and salami and whatever and you've got this whole plate of biogenic amines waiting to happen um so you know you can you yeah. can see the problem you can see the, the the other thing i should say that's happening in the united states is is a lot of people i think are using this as an excuse to drink more alcohol That the idea of a healthier cleaner wine is giving them permission um to to drink quite high quantities uh, that's another thing that I really get loud and clear from Instagram when I look at people who are standing in their yoga gear with you know half a bottle of wine they've just drunk and feeling great about it because it was clean wine. Mm.
1: Well I think this is a perfect example of the biogenic amines. So um, so we know, we know now the science that there uh, could be this um, sort of accumulation uh, effect that makes you feel terrible after drinking You know, probably a cheese board, a you know charcuterie, along with the wine in an afternoon. So, you know, and this is coming from one of the world's top researchers on the topic. So, then how do we convince or successfully message that to the wine drinking public? I I do
2: use histamines as as I think I think consumers understand histamine reactions because they understand the taking of antihistamines. So, in some ways, that that's. Uh, I find it very difficult, even now, to be honest, maybe Felicity can help with this. But when I'm talking to people about that and you're always looking for links to nice, succinct, scientifically accurate explanations. And I'm not sh- really sure that there is a particularly good one yet. So maybe between us, we need to come up with a nice one pager that we can all disseminate widely.
3: You just say, look, it's like your cat. It'll make you feel allergic but you love the cat and you wouldn't get rid of it. That's what <laughs> Hamids <laughs> and Wines are like. <laughs> mm.
1: Um, Great. So, you know, I think we, you know, we touched a little bit on, uh, on the ingredients. So like actual ingredients that have an effect on the uh, the flavor of the wines would be included. And, um, and so what about processing aids? So, you know, we have a lot of consumers these days who are vegetarian or vegan and want to be ensured that, uh, you know, no egg products or fish products are being used in the processing of their wines how can uh, the wine industry successfully sort of come clean? And what does that look like um, for in, in actuality? How do we express that and help consumers understand more successfully how these wines are being produced?
0: Uh, I'll, I'll come in on that if you want. I, I, I mean, I think the first thing we've got to do is something. And even if we don't include processing aids on the back label, I think there would be a way of doing that without alarming people too much. I certainly think we do need to uh, mention the additives more clearly. And I think we've got to take some initiative. So I think that's the first thing. We've got to do something rather than nothing. And secondly, our voice will be much louder if it is a collective voice. If it's individual producers or individual retailers doing it. So for instance, the co-op has already taken initiatives in the UK in that direction. But as far as I can see, they're, they're a lone voice at the moment. We Our voice is much more likely to be heard by the public if it is a collective voice.
2: Yeah, I would agree. I think vegetarian and vegan and those processing aids, in some ways it's simpler again because you can, you know, you can put a suitable for vegetarians logo, suitable for vegans logo, and that's what the customer wants to see the customer doesn't want to know if what exactly the processing aid was it wants the customer wants to know if it if it has the customer the benefit that they are looking for so when we have our drinks list or on our waitress seller we try very hard to say if it's something is suitable for vegetarians or suitable for vegans but that does involve us going back to each winery once or twice a year and asking them to reconfirm 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 what that they haven't used some finding agent because I don't know, maybe there was a particularly windy vintage and the, there was lots of grape skins and they decided they needed to remove some excess tannin, which they hadn't the previous year. You know, it's it just requires people to be, and requires producers to be absolutely on top of their game with informing people and having that data to be able to then, for us as an industry, to be able to translate it into what the customer wants to hear. And that, as Richard says, it's that collective voice of translating accurate, good data into
4: a consumer message that is, I think, where we're currently not doing a great job.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: I, I, I agree. I mean, speaking as somebody who talks to consumers and, and writes about labeling quite a lot, I think it's not particularly helpful to put lots of biochemical-sounding names on a label. But if you can say suitable for vegetarians, suitable for vegans, that's, that says it all. That's what the consumer needs to know. But can I just ask a question here as somebody who's not closely uh, embedded in the wine industry? what's the use of scan codes because that's something that I'm seeing more on on supplements where you've got the ability if you haven't got room on the label many many more people will have the scanner app or a scanner app and they will simply scan something and that will then give a list of information you know further information how the wine was made what its sulfite content is you know histamines all of those things that I think are going to become more front of mind for people. Are are, are any winemakers using scan codes?
0: I'm really pleased to ask that question, Liz. I was going to ask exactly the same question as to how how important QR codes are and how much consumers actually use them. Um, I was hoping Anne might be able to shed some light on that as a retailer.
2: Um, Yeah, I mean, I can certainly come in. Um, I wouldn't say I'm an expert. I would say that they are not used as much as we might like to think they are. Um, I think there's a few reasons for that. I think um, there's a small number of customers for whom that information is is um, would be desired. But again, it's it's another step. It's another thing we're asking them to do. It's not consistent. Um, there are some producers who have that information, but because as a customer you can't know that if you turn around a bottle on a shelf that there will be a QR code and that will tell you something. It's it's you, if you're shopping, if you're buying wine
1: like,
2: as a normal consumer, either online or in a shop, you don't actually know that you've got that information to scan for. So unless it's consistently applied, and um, customers get more used to knowing it's there to look for. Um, and equally, there's, you know, our, we, we have to look back to, to the producers, you know, it's such a diverse industry with so many small producers. And actually, if you're going to have a QR code that leads you to a website, the customers expect information that's online to be accurate and up to date. maintained and at the moment i would say for wine compared to lots of other products that is not the case
1: Mm -hmm.
2: i mean if you get you go on to producers websites and you can find you know a product sheet for maybe for a vintage four years ago um and actually how reliable is the data that we're currently giving to customers i mean that, that the data has to be the big first step
1: yeah yeah, I, I think um, stateside we're we're seeing a similar thing. You know, the QR codes have not been so widely accepted uh, in uh, during the pandemic. I would say more so because a lot of restaurants um, are putting their lists, and even some retailers are putting their lists scannable by a QR code. And then you you know walk up to a window or walk to the door of a retail store, and you can just um, look at their list and see what they have available for you to purchase. Um, but that hasn't that hasn't been widely accepted. I'd say there are a couple examples um, Ridge Vineyards is a great one in the United States that uh, does label everything that goes into its wine, um, including uh, processing aids. Um, and then, you know, and we, uh, Aveline, I think was, uh, I, I've said that the, the one thing I think Aveline did right was they did talk about, you know, why a certain uh, ingredients that were processing aids were used in the wine. So they very clearly um, on their labels discussed uh, and on their website discussed why each of those things um, were used. However, they did not say even from which regions the wines were from. So uh, there's the, uh, some parts work and some parts kind of don't. Um, I saw an interesting question come through on the side uh, which was going back to Richard's earlier point about how as a trade, can we communicate um, wine facts? And uh, and so um, the question was from Nicole Roulet from Shen Blue. How can we go about having a collective voice in the wine industry?
3: We're all quiet. That's the that's the big question. <laughs> that's the big question. We haven't
2: solved that on any anything no. else. I, I do think funnily if it almost goes back to a comment that Toby made, I think, on one of yesterday's sessions, is is this is where just for once uh, we should we actually mourn the fact that we don't have such you know massive brand dominance by a couple of key key players. Because if in another category, if Unilever or Mars or somebody were able to was to make to start making claims about an entire an entire category then they've got a certain share of voice and we we just don't have that we've got this very very beautifully diverse um uh kind of industry which is one of its great joys but it's also one of its great challenges when it comes to communication and perhaps there's something around um again going back to a session from yesterday if if we have a kind of a global consensus of principles around what is and is not the right way to communicate to customers perhaps perhaps there's something around that in in this topic as well as in the the sustain, sort of more overall sustainability area yeah
1: yeah i think you know you know unifying the entire industry seems to be such a challenge i mean even Uh, When I was researching an article around this, I went to the California Wine Institute and I said, you know, um, what, uh, you know, I had reached out to them years before to ask about ingredient labeling in wines. And uh, at the time, three or four years ago, you know, they said our members and the consumers are not interested in that. When I reached back out this summer, um, they said, you know, we know that ingredient labeling is a um, more important topic than it was a couple of years ago. However, we are not uh, supporting any mandated ingredient labelling. So if that's just California, I wonder how we unite the entire wine industry and what would be an appropriate body to do so?
0: Can I, I'd just be interested to know what Liz has to say about this because she's been involved in other product categories. And I'd be really interested to know what she says about what uh, what people have done well or not so well in, say, cosmetics in terms of a collective voice.
4: That's very interesting. I mean, there there isn't one, basically. Uh, And, you know, there's a lot of misinformation and, and greenwash and all the rest of it when it comes to the use of the word natural, for example, you know, just as there is appearing in the wine trade. So there is no one overarching body. I mean, there's obviously the legal side um, on labelling, but there would be no collective forum. I think people closely guard their trade secrets and their marketing strategy and their labelling and their communication and just want to get one up on everybody else and, and not share and not being inclusive. I think what the beauty industry probably do as an example Um, well is they have very good PR teams. They probably have bigger margins, to be honest, to run PR teams, Um, but they do communicate well and they are very open and, you know, they've embraced social media, for example, a lot of information, a lot of transparency um, and question answering and, and relationships with, with customers directly. And I think there is an opportunity for, I think it probably does come down, I think to individual bottlers you know individual wine estates to to do that and to develop their own name in that area I'm not sure how you're going to be able to 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 regulate it as a as a whole industry and I don't think that other industries necessarily do that well either
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah I saw I saw a comment come through suggesting a ready global with the in conjunction with the sustainable wine forum I think that's an interesting idea. I mean, that, you know, it just seems like no, no, you know, sort of organizational body uh, has come together to really say this is an issue we need to get around. Um, But, uh, you know, from my perspective, it does seem like this is going to be increasing in importance over time. And I'd be curious to hear from, you know, all of the panelists do you think this is uh, the, you know, the importance around ingredient label or consumers wanting to know what's in the products they drink? Do you think that we are having a heightened moment right now around these issue, or do you think that this is the future?
4: I, I mean, for uh, me, I, I, I definitely think it's the future. I mean, I, I, I just see so much more interest. It was interesting to hear Anne talk about histamines earlier you know we've just over at the magazine been writing a lot about that there's growing awareness in the health arena about the role of histamine and and how that plays into all kinds of health issues and and i think consumers are going to be much more aware much more familiar with that and are going to start linking it to wine and i think there there is a danger there that people will start to think well wine is just full of sulfates and histamines and i can't have it so I think there's an opportunity here to to seize the day and to and to face it out and say, well, this is what what we do. This is how you can um, how you can select, you know, lower histamine wines, for example, um, and just as you can with lower sugar. I think you know there needs to be much more forward going action here um, because I don't think it's just going to happen collectively or legislatively. I think it's going to have to be done to individual winemakers to take okay. the initiative. And be much more open, and I think consumers will value that. And I think they'll they'll develop a relationship of trust and loyalty with a brand that does it.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Other thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, and I would absolutely say it's it's the future. And I interesting ch- comment in the chapter said about what the role of wine journalists is, because I think for me, uh, we we're talking about the responsibility of, and transparency on for individual producers, but there's also the danger that we're we're sort of shouting into the void. Of our own echo chamber and actually how we talk to the sort of customers that the clean wine brands are talking to. We're just we're not even having the right conversations in the right space and part of that is budget and money but actually you know we need to be working much better with journalists, lifestyle journalists, people who who are talking about things and the the ones potentially who are asking us what we might consider. We've got to stop thinking there are stupid questions. So every time someone says, um, "I can't drink red wine because of the sulfites," instead of rolling our eyes at them, we've got to have those conversations, and we've got to try and and have very open, honest conversations in the right uh, in the right place where where those customers are also reading their content. Because I think I don't. I'm speaking for myself potentially as well. But we, you know, we've got a great uh, we've got great customer base to talk to. But we we're all in danger of speaking to the people that we we're already talking to, as opposed to actually broadening that conversation into something that's going to make genuine change. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I'll drop I'll drop a link into um... Uh, into the chat here, um, uh, an article that I wrote that talks about some of the wine companies in the United States that are doing a good job on this issue. Um, so I think what kind of where I want to, uh, you know, we're going to move into questions in, in just a minute. But one of the things I, I want to touch on is, um, you know, there are a couple uh companies in the US, there's Atlas Wine Company, there's Shin Estates, um, there's Ridge Vineyards, which I mentioned, um, and then there's more DTC only companies like, um, uh, Ramona is a, a wine canned wine company uh, that does spritzers. It was started by uh, Jordan Salcido um, from a big restaurant group in uh, in New York, and I think some brands are really starting to understand. Here's what transparency looks like to consumers. It's it's sometimes less important for them to hear about you know, the vineyards and the the specific winemaking practices and more important for them to hear about, um, you know, the sugar counts like Felicity talked about or, you know, calories and all of those sorts of things as well as understanding the context of and the reasons behind some of the different uh additives that or processing aids that are being used so I wonder if um, there are companies wine companies uh, in Europe or in other countries that you guys are aware of that have done a good job sort of you know getting on the path of disclosing uh, the processes that they use
3: Question I, I can't think of I can't think of many um, yeah no I can't think of many.
4: Yeah. All right. Well, we have just seen in the chat there about um, talking about engaging with kind of lifestyle journalists. And I think that's absolutely right.
1: Mm -hmm. I think there
4: is just massive opportunity in, in social media um to, to to get on with you know anybody who's seen as a, even a remote influencer there's just so much education that needs you know a little bit of knowledge is often a dangerous thing and I think you know the more people you know you guys have got all the expertise and you know it and it's just how, how is that communicated and, and shared more widely I'm not sure you know wine journalists may be used to writing in a different style and in a different vein. I often read wine articles but it's not giving me the information I I want. I, I would like to know about how the grapes are grown and what is being used and even just crazy things like the alcohol content and sugar content. I mean that should be on in every feature when beside every bottle that's written about. I mean that's just a basic thing that I think is lacking let alone some of this deeper dive information.
1: Exactly, exactly. I think, um, you know, one of the challenges I've seen, uh, at least for American publications, is that the big the big publications like in style, lifestyle publications, the ones, the people magazines, those sorts of things that uh, a lot of times they are the biggest spreaders of misinformation because the journalists they're working with have no wine background uh, whatsoever. So I think, uh, you know, I saw a comment over here that was, you know, wine journalists should be partnering with these lifestyle brands. And I think that's exactly the right direction because otherwise you have, you know, a a very, you know, young intern or, um, or, uh, you know, just general lifestyle journalist who's trying to, convey uh, information that they they don't understand themselves. And I think that's one of the key challenges for, for publications. Um, so, great. We're going to open it now for questions. Uh, so, you know, I'll monitor over here on the side um, if, if people want to ask questions via chat um, and we can uh, Dive into any any issues that people uh, want to ask. So right now would be a good time to ask any any questions, um, just to keep us going. I would I would ask the panelists, uh, you know, what are what are your biggest. Takeaways from this topic right now? What are some actual, you know, issues, uh, some actual steps that uh, people in the trade can take to move this issue forward just a little bit, to combat inf- misinformation just a little bit, or to provide more transparency just a little bit? So let's have each one of the panelists, um, you know, answer that. Uh, Richard, let's start with you.
0: Okay. Um, despite what I said earlier about Uh, the wine trade possibly having a guilty secret, I do actually think that we're starting with with an advantage and a strength. And the advantage is very much that wine is seen as a healthy, natural product, which is a, 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 a healthy part of our civilization and our culture. So I think we're starting from a plus point. And I don't think we should necessarily stop the narrative and the messaging that has got us to where we are now, just because of a few barbed attacks um however it is a wake-up call. And I would like to see some action. I would like to see some action in the follow-up to this forum, which I believe there will be. Um, it has brought together a very large number of people from the wine world, um, most of whom have genuine influence in a number of areas. So I think we can participate in that discussion uh, subsequent to this forum. But I would love to see um, I can't help feeling that the the pressure is coming from the younger generation. There's no question. So that pull is already coming through from the younger generation that we need to be doing something. I would love to see the supermarkets doing more to do something about that. I know I have a part to play in that. Others in this call have a part to play in that. And I think if it was coming from the retailer, then it would be... (laughs) <laughs> the, the 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 producers would have less choice but to dodge the question.
1: Great, and do you want to hop in?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, one of the things that we we're doing at, at the moment is we're working very very hard on the data that we hold and making sure that it is accurate, complete, and it has and we have everything that we need. Because as we say, that's our responsibility as the retailer. And I know that, you know, Sue at MS, people, whether, whether it's our own label or whether it come, comes from, you know, whether we talk about Ponte Cane, at the end of the day, someone's saying, oh, it's a secret, my, my wine making, it's all a mystery because it's in of time and it's, it's a beautiful heritage product, and not wanting to, to tell customers that level of product data, that, you know, that we've got to move past that. But then equally, the customer doesn't want to know that data. The customer just wants to know what the benefit is to them and that's the conversation that we still haven't quite managed to get right and I don't think I know Kate was mentioning in the chat about how, how we pitch stories to lifestyle or, or how we get stories about wine into the, a, a wider discussion and I think partly maybe some of the problem is around how the, the fact that we talk about wine in a way that's not actually that interesting to your average consumer and I think maybe one of the things I'd like to see is us as an industry, myself included, really genuinely trying to understand how to make that change. Great. Um, Liz, will you happy?
4: Yeah, I think, you know, there, I think there is a lot of opportunity here. And as somebody who writes about health and wellbeing. You know, I'm always banging the drum for, for in favor of wine and pointing to studies looking at microbiome activity and respiratory, and and you know, let alone all the kind of mental health, well-being benefits of sitting down and relaxing with a, just a, a nice glass or something. So, I think that you know that you are off on the right foot. You know, it's you're not having to play catch up here but i think it's it's keeping that forward direction and i was interested to hear what you said richard about the younger generation and you know my, my kids are in their 20s and late teens and i see them in the kitchen or in the supermarket when they select something the first thing they do is turn it around and read the label You know, I don't recall doing that growing up. And I think there is this real awareness that, you know, we are what we eat or what we drink. And, you know, we want to be supporting good producers who are doing well. I saw comments on the chat about sustainability and, you know, eco-credentials. And that's obviously front of mind for a lot of the the younger generation, as well as the older folk too. But I think, you know, there is a real opportunity here to to tell good stories and to tell them well. You know, few products have that amount of option on their pack directly it's not on a box that gets thrown away you know this is a bottle that stays in your fridge or your cupboard and can be read at any time there's a lot of space on that back label and i think it should be used wisely and well and you can be onto a winner
3: great and felicity well i, I actually think some of it has to start with the way the wine trade speaks to each other since i've started writing about this i've heard endless stories people have told me, um, conspiracy theories about big lobby groups that have lobbied to keep wine ingredient labelling out um, with the, the, the implication that, that the wine industry has all these dark secrets that we don't want anybody to know about. Um, having spoken to some of the people who've done that lobbying, the reason that they did it was simply because the regulatory burden on very small farmers to keep upga- upgrading every year because it's not an industrial process. They don't use the same processes every year. Depending on vintage, it can change markedly and to ask them every year to sort of create a label, especially for ex- for differing um, regulatory regimes in export markets, is going to be a very, very substantial cost. So that's that's always been the reason why why big groups have not been very in favour of ingredients labelling, not because they want to keep keep the secret about the dark stuff that you know we put into wine. So I think it's really important that wine wine people themselves understand that, and also are very very clear that there is nothing that is toxic or poisonous in wine except the alcohol itself. Um, and if we could if we could. St- Stop members of the wine trade um, talking about that or saying that some types of wines will not give you hangovers. Um, I, I think we would be, um, I think we would all be better off. On, on the, the thing about talking about health. I just have to say, you know, we're talking about lifestyle journalists who don't understand wine, and quite often wine writers don't understand science and medicine. And one thing that I would really like to stop is I would really like to stop wine writers picking up press releases about badly done studies and then and then hyping that wine has all kinds of miraculous benefits from curing Alzheimer's disease to making the lame walk again and stuff like that. So I, I, I'd like some moderation on, on that front. Um, and finally, I think some of this issue is going to sort itself out because under the the Trump administration in the, U, in the US, um, a lot of the federal regulatory bodies have been quite toothless. And the TTB, which regulates things like what claims you can make about alcohol is already making noises that it's not happy about some of these health claims that are being made. And I think once we see the Biden administration come in, I think the TTB looks like it's going to go after some of these claims. Mm.
1: Great, well, uh, here's an interesting question um, from Heather Doherty. Uh, because of alcohol, is wine inherently dirty? The dirty, clean juxtaposition.
3: Well, if you, if you mean dirty, as in it's, it's got something in it that will do you harm, the answer has to be, yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you drink too much of it, yep, it's going to do you harm. And then, and that outweighs absolutely anything else in the wine, from the biogenic amines to the sulfites to the, you know, is in glass or whatever. Um, and that's why, you know, wine in moderation. Yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah, why
2: nobody, everyone, you buy wine to indulge in something, and uh, you know, that we, we've got to keep the pleasure part of it alive as well.
4: Right. I, so, then- I, I, I definitely disagree. I don't think wine is inherently dirty. And I think it's, you have to look at the risk benefit analysis of everything. You know, it, it's about, as you say, moderation. Is one glass of wine dirty? No. Is drinking two bottles in an hour and a half going to harm you? Yes. You know, but that you could say that for anything. You know, you eat too many carrots, you die. So, you I know, mean, I, I think you I don't think you should get too hung up on on this because it is it is about just balancing risk with with benefit.
2: Right, a healthy. Yeah. Um, Oxygen uh, kills us all eventually. Yeah,
1: yeah exactly. Uh, and then I think we have a time for maybe just one or two more questions. Um, I saw one from uh, Richard Siddle uh, pop up. Hi, Richard. Thank you. Um, so, so, uh, he says from, you know, from what I understand, the wine trade lobby is keen to restrict changes to wine labeling as it opens up a hornet's nest of what is included. And then where do you stop? What, what are your thoughts about that?
0: I, as I said earlier, I don't think it's a question of where we stop. I think it's a question of where we start. We can't use where do we stop as an excuse not to do something. Okay, we don't know the answer to that, although I thought some really useful comments have been made in the the chat on this area about what's likely to be included in the regulations, whether it's processing aids as well as additives. And also I noticed that Dominic said that uh, the the use of scan codes was going to be was likely to be permitted as a means of expressing that information. But I I think we've got to start. And I think we should start certainly with any additives. but as I say, I don't think doing nothing is an option.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it seems like kind of the the overarching m- message uh, maybe would be twofold. One is you know we can promote wine as a healthy indulgence, obviously in mo- moderation, which I think most wine communicators do already. Um, And then I think, you know, the bigger issue that I would love to see tackled, and it seems like everyone on this call would love to see it tackled, is for an organization really to get around uh, the issue and try to bring stakeholders from around the world together to really um, dive into what transparency means in wine. And how to communicate that uh, with, you know, information that is backed up by science, by facts. Um, I mean, I think a lot of it. Uh, till now has been um uh frankly felicity <laughs> felicity i feel like you've been on the one the the one journalist debunk show uh really reaching out to top journalists uh to top researchers around the world to do this so how do we move it from the journalistic perspective to uh, the organizational perspective and get buy-in from uh, the entirety or at least a lot of stakeholders within the trade that seems to be uh that seems to be my takeaway from from. from this conversation. Um, Others feel free to jump in with yours and and we have uh, just about one minute
0: left. I'm really reassured to see a lot of the people from the chat who are present in this discussion. There are a number of uh, senior influences in the wine business, Uh, Jancis, Richard Siddle, Pauline Vicar, Nicole, a number of people who have their, already have um, collect collectives and uh, publications, uh, Felicity, of course, on the panel too. And so I I actually think there's a huge amount of influence in the room at the moment. And I I I think we need to make the most of that, not, can I'm sorry, obviously, and Liz, you as well. I mean, yes. Uh, I agree. So.
2: I think this is a brilliant first step and I think there's gonna be something around getting a collective language that is clear and accurate where we potentially are are all able to communicate to our different customer bases in a way that's consistent so they're they're getting the same message whether they see uh, you know whether they're talking about wine in a supermarket whether they're reading about something in the paper or whether they see something on tv or you know wherever it is if we can start to create a collective language that um is easy to be under that. uh, understandable that is that can almost sit alongside that clean debate so because clean and dirty are such simple concepts and we need to create another simple concept to stand alongside it somehow you know natural clean dirt clean all these things are just lovely communicable concepts which is why they've taken they've taken you know so much uh of the volume away from you know conventional and all the other things that we talk about wine where actually you know those are not great great messages. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, I know we've run up against time now, um, but I think for all of us uh, in the room here who would like to volunteer to help with a labeling initiative, um, it sounds like it really is in the best interest of uh, the wine industry to start to focus on this issue as it does not seem like it's going away. So thank you to all of our panelists for joining us today. It has been a fascinating discussion.